You are listening to an audio sermon from Sovereign Grace Church Toronto. For more information, visit sovgracesto.org. Please open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 18. We're continuing our series in the life of Abraham as we take this kind of big chunk in the middle of Genesis and study the life of uh, really the first patriarch in Old Testament history. Today we are in Genesis chapter 18. A few weeks ago at our King's World Summer Music Camp, I had a memorable conversation with a seven-year-old boy from the community, uh, unchurched background Uh, His family, I think, comes from a Catholic background, but very unfamiliar with a lot of what we talk about. Uh, One of the things that we do at King's World is uh, every day we have a time right after lunch called the chapel session, where we have some games and stuff, but then we have a speaker come up and share uh, truths about the gospel to point the kids to the salvation that we can only find in Christ. Now, on this particular day, we invited the kids who wanted to talk more about Jesus to sit in the pews to remain where they are while the rest of the groups went to the back of the sanctuary where we had some activities planned for them. Um, And the kids here would then be met with different group leaders and counselors who would then be able to pray for them and uh, hopefully to lead them to Christ. Now this little boy, this seven-year-old boy, was one of the kids who who stayed behind. So I went up to him and I asked, uh, what can I do for you? And he said this. He said, I know that God forgives me when I sin." Because Jesus died for me, but how do I stop sinning so much? Seven-year-old boy, unchurched background, what a great question. Now knowing this, I wanted to get as practical as possible and avoid getting too theological, so I I just said, great question, I'm so happy you're you're asking that question. you know, let me give you three things that you can do, that you can take home. And I, I just pray that he would take this home, not only as a seven-year-old boy, but for the rest of his life. I said, read the Bible, pray to God, and go to a good church. These three things form the core of all Christian growth, don't they? There are other things as well, but without these essential practices, you're not going to grow very much. You're, you're not going to stop sinning. You need to read the word prayerfully, under the guidance, protection, and teaching of a local church uh, full of people who will um, correct you, who will pray for you, who will sharpen you through biblical fellowship. But why are these three things so important? You know, if I would have had the opportunity to get a little bit more theological with him, um, I probably would have said something like this. Well, it's not because these things have power in themselves, These things are so important because they bring us into the presence of the one who has the power to save. You know, reading the Bible, praying, being part of a local church only help us grow to the extent that we have an encounter with the living God. If we do these things as just religious practice without a genuine desire to actually know God, to encounter him, it doesn't matter how much we do them. It's all going to be in vain. Because we can't do anything to make ourselves stop sinning. Isn't that true? There's nothing that we can do. 
to make ourselves stop sin, uh, make ourselves stop sinning. We can't read the Bible and just expect ourselves to stop sinning. We need God to work in our lives through his word by the power of the Holy Spirit as we humble ourselves in prayer. That's how we stop sinning. This is an essential teaching of the New Testament that it is in a relationship with God. It is in knowing God more deeply and more fully that we are changed. Beholding God leads to becoming more like God. Seeing God leads to, leads to sanctification by God. And that's why Paul writes in the well-known verse, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, and we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, seeing him with clearer vision, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. The better we see God, the better we come to resemble and imitate him. The reason why we don't imitate him is because we don't see him as we should. We see him with vision clouded by the darkness of sin. We see him with hearts that are hardened to his beauty and majesty and that look to lesser things instead. But in the glorious day when we finally stand in the presence of God looking at him no longer by faith but face to face, in an instant we will become perfect, saved to sin no more. Or as the Apostle John put it in 1 John chapter 3, Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Why? Because we shall see him as he is. Now the same was true of Abraham. This isn't just a New Testament idea that sanctification comes from seeing. Here in chapter 18, God reveals that he didn't just choose Abraham to bless him. He didn't say, look, Abraham... Look at all these things I'm going to do for you and through you. Of course, that's what he promised, but, but there's more to it than that. Uh, he reveals in chapter 18 that, that he chose Abraham so that he might stop sinning and start living in a way that reflects God's character. As verse 19 of chapter 18 says, For I have chosen him, Abraham, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. And how would God make him into that kind of man? Well, God would make him into that kind of man by showing up. God appears in this incredible chapter in human form. And he demonstrates for Abraham what holy living looks like, what true justice and righteousness look like when they are practiced perfectly. So that Abraham, Abraham might see God and be transformed into the same image. So with that introduction, let's read our text today, Genesis chapter 18. We're going to read the entirety of the chapter. This is the word of the Lord. And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth. And said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves. And after that, you may pass on since you have come to your servant. So they said, do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, quick, three seahs of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. 
Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. They said to him, Where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, She's in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out, and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, No, but you did laugh. Then the men set out from there, and they looked down towards Sodom. Abraham went with them to set them on their way. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. So the men turned from there and went towards Sodom. But Abraham still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the 50 righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. Again, he spoke to him and said, suppose 40 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. And he said, oh, let not the Lord be angry and I will speak. Suppose 30 are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. He said, behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again but this once. Suppose 10 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. May God bless the reading and preaching of his word. The title of this message is Living Like God. Living Like God. My aim today is to show you that knowing God makes us more like God. Knowing God 
makes us more like God. We'll have three points today. First, God's kindness. Second, God's justice. And third, God's mercy. God's kindness, his justice, and his mercy. First, God's kindness. Verses one to eight open with an over-exuberant display of Middle Eastern hospitality. Uh, when I was uh, in university, my best friend was, uh, was an Egyptian man, and uh, I would often go to his parents' house and enjoy the richness of Egyptian hospitality. We have that on display here in Abraham's life in the first eight verses, captured in the eternal word and truth of Scripture. Verse one says that Abraham was sitting at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. Okay, this is, it's hot outside, it's the middle of the day, he's gone through a whole morning of hard work, he's tired. He's ready to take a break in the shade of his tent, perhaps preparing for a uh, Canaanite siesta. But as he lifts up his eyes in verse 2, he sees three men standing at some distance in front of him. The text itself tells us in verse 1 that the Lord himself was in this group. The Lord is appearing to Abraham somehow mysteriously in the appearance of these three men. But Abraham, he doesn't know this yet. All he sees is three men of some noble bearing approaching him. Most of us would have been strongly tempted to just be like, go on your way, leave me alone, it's my nap time. Um, Or just just sit there, you know, close our eyes and ignore them, but not Abraham. Verse two says that he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and he essentially begs them for the privilege of serving them. And to his great delight, they accept. And so this 100-year-old man springs into action. The whole scene captures this amazing flurry of activity. Verse six says that he went quickly to Sarah's tent and he says, quick, make some cakes with our best flour. Then verse seven says that Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf. He's... he's Summoning all his youthful energy again as a hundred-year-old man as he rushes to serve these three mysterious strangers. Gives this uh, calf to a young man who prepares it quickly. And then when everything is prepared, he himself, not a servant, not his wife, not that young man who prepared that, that calf, he himself takes those curds and milk along with the meat and sets it before them. And he stands at attention as they sit comfortably in the shade of the tree enjoying the feast that he had prepared. What a stunning display of service. This rich, powerful, elderly man spares no expense or energy to serve these three strangers who are just passing by. He doesn't expect others to serve him and wait upon him just because God's favor rests on him. He happily springs into action to serve people he doesn't know and perhaps may never see again. Because he knows, you know, this is, one of, this is one of Abraham's good moments. We've seen Abraham go through a roller coaster of moments of faith, moments of doubt, moments of obedience, moments of disobedience. This is, this is one of his, his high moments. He is fulfilling his commission here given to him by God, not just to receive God's blessings, but to be a blessing to the nations. Isn't that what God told him in Genesis chapter 12? He's blessed to be a blessing. And he's carrying out that commission here in chapter 18. But as great as his act of service was, it was tiny and insignificant compared to the service that they had come to show him. Because as we know from verse one, among these three men 
was the Lord himself. We see that again later on in verse 10 when it says that, that the leader of the three spoke, it was the Lord who spoke. We, and, and then in verse 20, when the Lord speaks to Abraham about the coming destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, it says, the Lord said, and then again in verse 22, when, when two of the three men who appear to be um, angels depart for Sodom, leaving the leader with Abraham, it says, Abraham still stood before the Lord. There's no question about it. Abraham wasn't just hosting men. He was hosting God. God had appeared to him. God was the one who was sitting in front of him, eating his meat and drinking his curds, or whatever you do with curds. Do you eat curds or drink curds? I'm not sure. Well, the God who had called him out of the land of Haran when he was nothing and brought him into the land of Canaan with everything was there in human form, visiting him as a man would visit his friend. This is what scholars call a theophany. A theophany, this fancy word to just describe a visible revelation of God to his people. And this particular theophany in Genesis 18 was special because in the past, God had uh, had appeared to Abraham in a vision or in audible words, but here he appears to him as a man. I don't think it would be inaccurate to say that this was a type of proto-incarnation. The true incarnation would only take place when the word became flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. But here we have a foreshadowing of that moment. God may not have become flesh, but he was pleased to appear in the flesh. And that is an incredible kindness. The holy God of eternity would condescend to meet us in the dirt and brokenness of our sinful world. That's not a right that we possess. That is a gift that we receive. He gave this gift to Abraham here in Genesis chapter 18, and he would give this gift to all of us in Jesus Christ. When the Son of God himself, the eternal word of God, would become flesh and dwell among us. Abraham may not know it yet, but he is being wonderfully served by these unexpected visitors. The servant, as exuberant and as extravagant and as generous as his service was, that servant was the one who was being served. And that begins to become apparent to him in the next few verses, verses 9 to 15. Verse 9, they ask, where is Sarah, your wife? Now, wait a second. How did they know her name? Or to be more precise, how did they know her new name? Sarah was the name God had just given her in Genesis chapter 17 when he changed her name from Sarai to Sarah. And these events in chapter 18 happen immediately after the events in chapter 17. Because you remember in Genesis chapter 17, God said, at this time next year, I shall return to you and you shall have a son. And he says exactly the same thing here in chapter 18. At this time next year, I will return and you shall have a son. These events are happening uh, immediately after one another. So these strangers know Sarah's new name that God had just given her. People didn't know about this yet. It was her secret name, her divinely given name, the name God gave her to communicate his personal care and blessing to her. But that's not all these strangers knew. After Abraham tells them, well, she's in the tent, the leader of the three says in verse 10, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. In other words, they don't just know her divinely given name. They know her divinely given 
promise. They tell Abraham what only he would have known, that Sarah shall have a son when the Lord returns to her at this time next year. Now Abraham, he's beginning to realize that there's more to these three men than meets the eye. As it turns out, verse 10 tells us that Sarah was listening into their conversation. She was at the doorway of her own tent, which was behind them. That's what verse 10 goes out of its way to specify. She's behind them, meaning that she was positioned where uh, these three men couldn't see her. Now, verse 11 repeats what we already know about Sarah from Genesis 17, but says it in three different ways. Abraham and Sarah are old. Abraham and Sarah are advanced in years. And the way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. Uh, Verse 11 leaves it in no uncertain terms. Not only is pregnancy unlikely, Pregnancy is biologically, physiologically impossible. It was impossible biologically, humanly speaking, for God's promise to Sarah to be fulfilled. So Sarah responds, as I think any of us would have responded. She laughs. Quietly to herself, because she's not supposed to be listening And says to herself, after I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? These are the words of a woman who has suffered profound disappointment. To use her very own words, she is worn out. She is tired of talking about this. You know, to quote Bilbo Baggins, she feels like she's too little butter spread over too much bread. She's tired of hoping for children. She's tired of promises being made to her of children. She's tired of waiting for children. She has been disappointed too many times. Too many times of thinking, is is this finally the time? Do I finally have new life growing in my womb? Will I finally experience the joy of holding my own child only to be answered no, 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 again and again and again for decades a lifetime of hoping, a lifetime of no's, and now there is nothing left. She is worn out. How about you? Are you worn out today? Have you been disappointed far too many times to hope in God's word and to trust in his promises? When you encounter God's promises, do you laugh? Do you scoff at them? Are you so tired and exhausted that all you can do is chuckle underneath your breath when people pray over you, when you hear the word preached and you say, that's not for me. It might be for that person. I have faith for that person, but not for myself. I am worn out. Well, if that's you, then take comfort in what happens next. Verse 13, Lord reveals that Sarah's secret laughter wasn't so secret after all. Though she was in her own tent, standing behind him, laughing to herself, the Lord knew He knew that she laughed and she knew why she laughed. And he reveals this knowledge to Abraham when he asks, well, why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? You know, she's positioned behind him in the tent. She's laughing quietly to herself and yet the Lord knows. And he's not asking this question because he's trying to inquire about why she was laughing. You'll notice Abraham doesn't give him an answer. The Lord is asking this question merely to to challenge her response because of the glorious truth contained in verse 14. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Of course, nothing. Nothing is too hard for the Lord. Not blessing them, not multiplying them, not fertilizing an egg in a worn out, barren woman's womb. 
God will do all that he says because nothing is too hard for the Lord. Now with this, Sarah begins to realize who her husband is speaking to. She realizes that this is no ordinary man. This is an extraordinary man possessing extraordinary knowledge. And that makes her very afraid. So she tries to cover up her doubts, ironically, by lying. You know, he knows things about me that I don't, I never told him. He shouldn't know these things, and yet she's lying. She thinks that she can deceive him, this one who knows all. She says, I did not laugh. I did not laugh. She was afraid. And that's what we do when we're afraid. We don't act rationally. We just do the first thing that comes to our minds. And so here we have Sarah doubting God's word, laughing at God's promises, lying to God's face. And how would God respond to her? With a harsh word of correction? With a lightning bolt from the sky? With disappointment and rejection? No, none of that. He responds with a gentle word of correction. And a reminder that he knows all things. No, but you did laugh. That's it. No raised voice, no hand raised to strike. Just the simple truth. I wonder, my friends, do you see God's kindness in this simple act? God did not treat her according to her iniquities. He did not give her what she deserved. He showed her divine patience and care. Because he knew how weak she was. He knew how worn out she was. He knew that rebuking her or disciplining her would ruin her. And so he stayed his hand. That's how God treats us as well when our doubts, perhaps even our sins, arise out of our hopelessness and despair. When we are worn out by a long season of disappointment, now, when those doubts, when that laughing at God's promises arise, arises out of pride or arrogance, it's a different matter. God will oppose the proud. But when it's our weakness that drives our despair, God shows us special grace and kindness. That is a precious truth for us. As Isaiah 42 verse 3 says, a bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. Listen, if you are bruised today, if the fires of your faith are burning low because God has been taking you through a long and dry season of disappointment after disappointment after disappointment, do not be afraid. God stands ready to forgive you. He waits for you to return to him. And even before you do that, he will deal gently with you knowing that you are frail, that you are weak, that you are but dust and ashes. This wonderful truth about God, about how he deals kindly with the weak, would become even more precious and comforting after the true incarnation to which this proto-incarnation merely points to as a foreshadowing. Many of us know those precious verses in Hebrews 4, right? About how Jesus, our high priest, sympathizes with all of our weaknesses because he has been tempted as we are, but not many of us know what it says a few verses later in Hebrews 5 verse 2. He can deal gently, listen, he can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. The Lord deals gently with us in our weakness because he knows what it is like to be weak. 
He empathizes with us in our struggles and in our temptation and perhaps even in our doubts. He knows what it's like to to be tempted to sin and because of that we can be confident, even more confident than Abraham and Sarah were in Genesis chapter 18 that he will be patient with us in our weakness and he will deal kindly with us in our doubts. Following this conversation, the three men set out in verse 16 to a place where they can overlook Sodom, a wicked city that has been rotted by corruption, and Abraham, as the generous host, goes with them to set them on their way. And it is here that the Lord models another lesson for Abraham, leading to our second point, God's justice. Verses 17 to 19 capture a conversation that God has about whether he should disclose what he's about to do to Sodom and Gomorrah to Abraham. And we don't know who God is speaking to. It doesn't specify, but I think a fair implication is he's speaking to his two angelic companions. He's taking counsel with them before he decides what to do next. In verse 17, he asks, shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Now we know from verse 20 and onward, stretching into chapter 19, uh, that what God is about to do is destroy these entire cities, Sodom, Gomorrah, and all the neighboring cities. And uh, that is exactly what happens in the next chapter. The question is, does Abraham need to know that this is going to happen? Um, you know, after all, we could ask the question fairly, why should Abraham care? What is, how is this his business? What, what does Sodom and Gomorrah have to do with Abraham? God has already shown himself to be perfectly content hiding things from Abraham. You know, he didn't tell Abraham that Sarah would be the one who would have a son, the son of the covenant, until 24 years had passed. So why not hide this as well? Well, there's two reasons. The first is in verse 18. God reflects on the fact that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. In other words, God's justice, you could say, against Sodom and Gomorrah was ultimately Abraham's business because they were among the nations that Abraham was supposed to bless. God's work in the world was very much within Abraham's jurisdiction, his God-given jurisdiction. That gave God reason to disclose what he was about to do to Abraham. It would be a test. Abraham knew God's mandate that he had given him to be a blessing. And the question was, well, would he, would he try to bless them? Or would he call down curses upon them? And he wasn't treated very well by the king of Sodom um, earlier in his life. Would he hold that against them? Or would he seek their good? That's one of the reasons. The second reason is disclosed in verse 19. The Lord says, For I've chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. In other words, God is saying that he should tell Abraham about his plans for justice because Abraham was called to do justice as well. To do justice and to teach the generations that came after him what it looked like to do justice. God saw value in inviting Abraham into his plans so that he could see how God does justice and learn from the master of justice himself. And only then would he have the wisdom and experience to pass on those lessons about justice to his children. And so with these reflections complete, God's decision has been made. He decides to disclose rather than hide. In verses 20 to 21, he says to Abraham, 
Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. God has heard an outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah. Great cries of sorrow and anguish, accusations of injustice. Now, I don't think that that means that the victims of the people of Sodom and Gomorrah were praying to God and actually using their their words to tell God what has happened. I think what's happening here is more akin to what Genesis 4, verse 10 says about Abel. Remember that? After Cain, Abel's brother, murders him in the field, Genesis 4, verse 10 says, uh, the Lord says, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. God hears injustice even when those who have suffered the injustice are dead and gone. His knowledge of the evil acts of men aren't dependent on the prayers of their victims. It's dependent on himself, on his omniscience. He knows all, he hears all, and he will act upon all. And one of the hardest things about suffering injustice, if you've suffered injustice, if someone has done something cruel to you and gone unpunished, one of the hardest things about that is that no one knows about it except you. Suffering injustice alone is just as hard as suffering the injustice itself. But God wants you to know that you do not suffer alone. He has heard the injustice that you've suffered. He has seen the sins that have been committed against you. You don't need to explain it to him. You don't need to give him all the details. He, of course, he wants you to come to him, to fellowship with him, and to turn to him and cry out to him, but he doesn't need you to. God will address every injustice because he is a God of justice, and he will make everything that is unjust just in the final reckoning. Now you may be wondering, if God knows about their sin, then why does he say in verse 21 that he will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me? If God has heard not only accusations of injustice, but he has heard the injustice itself, why does it seem like he needs to go and investigate? Well, that's a good question. Those are the kinds of questions we should be asking as we're reading through the text, we're working through the text together. And let me try to Uh, uh, propose an answer to that question. I think the answer is that God is modeling what justice should look like for Abraham. God doesn't need to investigate, but Abraham will. Abraham's descendants will. We will. When we hear outcry, when we hear about the sins of others, we're not omniscient. The injustices themselves don't cry out to us. We need to go and inquire and investigate carefully. We need to see for ourselves whether the allegations are true. I think that makes sense in the context, given that God is saying, I I have called him to be just, and I have this act of justice, and I'm disclosing it to him to teach him what justice looks like. And the fact that God does this in verse 21, where he says, I'm going to go and inquire whether this is true or not, That ought to be a comfort to us because it shows us that God treats justice, the execution of his justice, with great caution. It's like here we have a picture of how carefully God treats justice. We can have confidence that when God pours out his justice, it is not arbitrary, 
It is not impulsive. It is not excessive. It is carefully measured and considered. As Kenneth Matthews puts it, by examining the situation, the Lord acts justly, not capriciously in the determination he makes. And that is true, not only of the situation with Sodom and Gomorrah, but with every instance of his justice against sin. Now this leads to the final portion of chapter 18 and to the Lord's third lesson for Abraham, God's mercy. Now we saw earlier that one of the reasons why God decides to tell Abraham about his justice against Sodom and Gomorrah was to test him. Would he fulfill his mandate to be a blessing or would he not? Well, verses 22 to 33 reveal that Abraham passes the test. He prays for them. Not that God would show them justice, like they clearly deserve, uh, but that God would show them mercy. He doesn't want God's curses on them. He wants God's blessings. So in verses 23 to 25, Abraham makes this eloquent moral argument as he appeals to God to spare these cities. In a way, you could say it looks like he's challenging God to do what is right for the sake of the righteous. In verses 23 and 25, Abraham expresses his belief that it would be wrong for God to sweep away the righteous with the wicked because the righteous shouldn't be treated the same as the wicked. And so God, uh, Abraham makes this appeal to God that if there are 50 righteous in the city, God would spare the entire city. And God listens and agrees. Um, then in a series of five subsequent appeals, Abraham continues to whittle that down, 45, 30, 20, and then 10. And every time, God uh, agrees Abraham approaches the Lord with this fear and trembling in his voice. Lord, don't be angry with me. Listen, please have have mercy on them for the sake of the righteous in the city. And every single time, God agrees. Now, in order to understand what this means, we need to first understand what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that the Lord was about to do something evil. Where he's like, I'm going to kill all these righteous people. And then Abraham says, no, please don't. And Abraham's like, oh. And then God thinks, oh, maybe I should reconsider. That's not, what, that's not what's happening here. Abraham is not putting God in his place. Abraham's not keeping God from doing evil. He didn't teach him what true justice requires. Well, how, how do we know that? Well, we know that because of what ultimately happens in chapter 19. For those who know their Old Testaments, you'll know what happens in chapter 19. It turns out that there's not 50 righteous or 45 or 30 or 20 or even 10. There is one righteous, Abraham's nephew Lot, and even his righteousness is questionable because of what he proposes to do with his daughters. But what does God do? Does he wipe away the one righteous with the wicked? Abraham didn't pray about that. He didn't say, oh, if there's one righteous, will you spare the entire city or will you rescue that one righteous person? That's not a situation Abraham covered, and yet what does God do? He sends his two angelic companions to rescue Lot and his daughters and his wife and his sons-in-law, even though half the family would end up rejecting that mercy, Lot and his daughters would escape. God does what is just, not because Abraham compelled him to do it or convinced him to do it because God knew what was just all along. So if that's not what these verses mean, then what do they mean? Well, they teach us something profoundly glorious about God. That as great as God's justice may be, his mercy is even greater. God was willing to stay his hand against the entire city of the wicked for the sake of his mercy towards the few righteous people. Ten righteous people. 
would be all it would take for the whole city to be saved. Ten righteous people would cover the wicked like a protective shield from God's justice. As Gordon Wenham put it, God's mercy on the few will outweigh his anger with the many. Now we read these verses and think they're about the power of prayer. They're about intercession, but they're not about intercession. They're about revelation. Revelation of God's heart towards sinners. He is compassionate. He is merciful. He is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love even toward the wicked. Abraham's prayers didn't create this. They merely revealed this gloriously comforting reality. As Kenneth Matthews puts it, the Lord does not require any arm twisting by Abraham to act benevolently. The tactic by Abraham only further exposes the compassionate heart God has for the whole place, including the wicked. I wonder how much God has spared our world our nation, our communities, perhaps even our families because of the righteousness of a few. If faithful Christians and faithful churches were to disappear from our land, who knows what God would do? But thanks be to God that the faithfulness of a few holds back the justice of God against the many and that is exactly what God did for us in Christ, isn't it? In Christ, the righteousness of one man would stay God's justice against the many because he would take that justice upon himself. Jesus would die on behalf of all who trust in him so that God's justice wouldn't be aimed at them, at us. It would be aimed at him and him alone. The righteous would be punished like the wicked so that the wicked would be rewarded like the righteous through faith in Jesus Christ. And so I urge you, put your trust in him find your refuge in him, that you would know the Lord as the God of all mercy and be free to show the same mercy to others. So what do we do in response? What are the takeaways, the application for us, these wonderful truths about God? Well, let me briefly suggest two things. First, we need to learn to deal kindly with the weak. Now, when I meditated on this lesson, I couldn't help but apply it to myself as the father of young children. I think there's a word here for parents of young children, including myself. It is far too easy for us to fall into the trap of treating our kids like little adults. We expect them to be mature like us. We set the same standards for them as we set for ourselves. We treat them more like equals that happen to just be smaller, lower to the ground than like little children. Now, we need to remember that children are weak. They are immature by definition. They are limited by virtue of their limited age and experience. And because of that, we ought to treat them with unique kindness. We don't just give them what they deserve. We spare them. We don't speak harshly with them. We communicate gently with them. We don't accuse and threaten and rage. We patiently correct and nurture. And why? Because that's how God deals with us. The kindness he showed to Sarah is the same kindness he shows to us every single day. I am absolutely amazed that in that four-year period that I was just talking to you before, uh, before the break that God did not discipline me harshly. He could have. That's how he could have dealt with me to bring me to my senses and leading me to repent of my sins, but instead he spoke to me in a 
gentle whisper said, Josh, this is wrong. I'm going to give you the grace to repent, the power to change. That is how God deals with the weak. There is a time for discipline. Don't get me wrong. And there is a time for parental discipline. But so often, as we remember how often God spares us, we ought to think about how we should spare our children. The same is true for those who are weak, not just because of their age, because they're children, but because they're suffering. As we saw last Sunday in Pastor Paul Carter's sermon, one of the biggest mistakes that Job's friends made was that they didn't treat Job as one who was weakened by suffering. They treated him more like a peer in a classroom. And they engaged in intellectual debate and discussion with him. And they didn't, they didn't show him the kindness and the gentleness that he needed in those moments of intense suffering and loss. They said a lot of things that were true. But they were said at the wrong time. Because the weak, the weakened Job couldn't respond to those words as he should have. When those around us are weak, whether by virtue of their age or their suffering, we are called to treat them with exceptional kindness. Second lesson, we need to learn to be slow to judge. We live in a time of instant judgment where accusations are made and believed simultaneously. Accusations are made and believed simultaneously. That is not how justice works. Accusations need to be tested and they need to be proven. And when they are proven, there needs to be justice against that person. But when they're not proven, there needs to be justice for that person. If God saw fit to inquire about the outcries against Sodom and Gomorrah, how much more should we? When one of our kids accuses his sibling of wrongdoing, do we rush to judgment? Or do we inquire? Do we gather them and say, what what happened here? Do we test? Do we compel the accusing child to prove his case. When the latest Twitter trend tears down that public figure's reputation, do we rush to judgment or do we inquire? And if we find that we cannot conduct a full inquiry that would give us both sides of the story and allow us to test the evidence, are we content to reserve our judgment? We don't need to judge every accusation of wrongdoing. That is not our place. We are not God the judge. We do not sit on a throne looking at the deeds of men. We do not know people's hearts. We are but worms. We must be ready to judge what is wrong, but we also must be ready to not judge what is unclear and be okay with that. And how? Because we know that nothing is unclear before God. He hears all injustice The injustices cry out to him and he knows it. He sees it with his own eyes and he will bring justice in his own way and in his own time. And so, let us recommit ourselves to knowing the God of the scriptures, to beholding his glory expressed in kindness, justice, and mercy, ultimately in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Because that is the only way we will become people who deal kindly with the weak, who are slow to judge, who are content to entrust ultimate justice to him. Let's behold him in the face of Christ, our perfect example and loving savior who showed us the ultimate kindness and mercy on the cross. Let's pray.
Father, reveal more of yourself to us, your sinful people, that we might be sanctified, made more holy in your image, reflecting your perfect character, kindness, mercy, and justice. We confess that we have failed to do this, and we thank you for your mercy. We ask now that you would work in our hearts to change us into people who live lives that glorify you and bring you much honor. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.